why is it so helpful to process things in writing, perhaps in a way that's even deeper than what we can process in therapy, because the page becomes a scaffold that expands the amount of ourselves we can contemplate at once, which is also why it is so difficult. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. This month on the Find Your Voice podcast, I have a special treat for you. Along with my team here at Find Your Voice, I've put together a special series that's all about the power of a writing process to create positive change in your personal life. So we're covering topics like why writing can be so challenging for so many of us, what's happening in your brain when you sit down and you try to write, why writing is so therapeutic, what it costs us when some voices are silenced, and what a regular practice of writing might look like for you in your real life. We're going to meet guests like Deborah Ross, who's a therapist and an author of a book called Your Brain on Ink, a workbook on neuroplasticity and the journal ladder. We'll talk with Audrey Assad, who is a singer-songwriter, also a friend of mine, We'll talk with Elise Snipes, who's a therapist, and the infamous Science Mike, and my new friend Rafiq, who is a public health researcher. And we'll end with my friend Ruthie Lindsay, who's going to put all the pieces together for us when she talks about how she used a process of writing specifically to cure her own chronic pain. I'm so excited for you to hear that episode and her story. If you've ever had the impulse to write anything, Even something as simple as a scratched note on a cocktail napkin, you're not going to want to miss this series that pairs beautifully with my new book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple daily habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. I hope these episodes make you feel like the writer you already are. On today's episode of this special podcast series that we're calling The Power of Writing It Down, we're answering the question that so many writers over the years have asked me, which goes like this. If I'm really a writer, why is writing so hard for me? Most people are shocked to find that writing is not only hard for them, it's hard for absolutely anyone and everyone who's ever tried to write, even those people who are very gifted at their craft. In this episode, I talked to psychotherapist and journal therapist, Deborah Ross, author of the book, Your Brain on Ink, a workbook on neuroplasticity and the journal ladder, and the infamous Science Mike. To dig a little further into what makes writing so hard, and to remind ourselves what the hard work is for, listen to this episode. If you want to write, but it feels difficult, this is for you. To kick off this episode, let's chat with Science Mike. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's good to talk with you. Would you do me a favor and just introduce yourself? So say your name and then what you do, however you say what you do. I'm uh, Mike McHarg, and I'm a, gosh, a professional science educator. I help people understand how science affects their lives and their mental health 
and how we can use science to make a better world together. A couple of years ago, you came to a writing workshop that I taught. And one of the things that I talk about at these writing workshops is the what's happening in your brain when you're writing and then when you're not writing. And I talk about this for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it helps us understand why writing can be such a powerful tool for healing in our lives. And I think it also helps us understand if we're looking to toward publication, it can help us understand why we bump up against things like writer's block and what we can do to overcome writer's block. I'll never forget, I'm teaching this section that I always teach on the brain science and writing, and I look out into the crowd and you're sitting there. And it was the first time ever where I was like, I can't teach this. (laughs) (laughs) I all of a sudden, I'm not joking, Mike, I all of a sudden was like, I could be wrong about all of this. Like I, I, Mm. it's possible I just made this all up. I don't even know. Um, Anyway, what I would love is if you could talk about what you see as what's going on in the brain when we're writing or when we're not writing, why writing is such a powerful tool for healing. And we can touch on the writer's block thing too, if you want to, That's but that could be a different topic. Okay, great. Yeah, writing is really miraculous. I mean, if you think about what's happening, it's language is already incredible. If you think about this neuromechanically, you have a thought or a feeling. And a thought or a feeling, when we look at your body's systems, is a set of chemical reactions and electrical signals that move through your brain body system. That, let's just pause right there. That's amazing. <laughs> it's already okay? a miracle. Like already, oh <laughs> my gosh. Sentence in. <laughs> but then we, Homo sapiens, this incredibly particular species of primate, learn to use our body's muscles and our respiratory system to have precise control over the vocalizations we make. And then we start assigning meaning to those vocalizations. And once we do that, we we gain this ability to, and this is what it looks like on a brain scan, to teleport brain states from one brain to another. So if I, if I say the word rock, Right now, everyone who speaks English, who hears the word rock, has a very similar pattern of activity in their brains. And if I say joy, Hmm. we all start to have a very similar pattern. And if I tell a story that evokes joy, our brains become almost indistinguishable in brain neural imaging. That's really remarkable. And what writing does is it takes that already incredible thing that we're able to do face-to-face and allows that magic to move across time and space. Hmm. It's just remarkable. You know, I had a a period of my life, I grew up, I was a Christian, I was really into the Bible. Then I had a period where I was an atheist and I was really not into the Bible. And I'm like back (laughs) into the Bible again because I love this notion that the experiences that people had thousands of years ago become evocative in my life today, this moment, so different geographically, so different culturally, and yet there is some connection through the power of language. And one of the things that makes writing so particularly evocative is the way that allows us to communicate with ourselves. Have you ever noticed that when you imagine something, it's perfect? And I don't, this could be writing, this could be a painting, 
This could be a sandwich, whatever it is. We can imagine <laughs> something and it's perfect. When we try to put it into the world, it just doesn't quite measure up. And that's because mm. of the way our brains are architected. There is a way of understanding consciousness in the world of neuroscience called the global neuronal workspace. And the, the theory here is basically that the way we are conscious is there's a part of our brain that uh, links all the other parts of the brain together, our working memory. And whether or not that's truly the nature of consciousness or not, there is an interesting piece of insight to glean there. We have working memory that encompasses our awareness. And Cognitive scientists understand our working memory, depending on the person, depending on our circumstances, as being able to contain between three and seven chunks of information at any one moment. Stick Mm. with me. This is very important. What a page becomes is a supplement to our working memory. Why is it so helpful to process things in writing, perhaps in a way that's even deeper than what we can process in therapy, because the page becomes a scaffold that expands the amount of ourselves we can contemplate at once, which is also why it is so difficult. Anything that we look at, three to seven chunks of information at a time, will seem to be perfect because it is, in fact, not fully formed. It is, at best, a mirage of the thing that could be. But when we do the work, when we do the discipline of engaging our temporal lobes and our prefrontal cortex in conjunction with the parts of our brains that catalog and regulate our memories and our daily experiences and our feelings— we begin to create a specificity more intricate and more detailed, in fact, than the original experience was because we surpass the limitations of our neuronal workspace using the technology of language. Wow. Okay, so let me repeat this back to you to see if I understand. So basically what you're saying is I could have an experience in my life And if I were to put into language that experience to someone very quickly, let's just say, you know, I tell someone like, I went through a divorce, it was really terrible. The three points, like I'm thinking of the three and seven that are easy to remember. If I Mm -hmm. were to reiterate it really quickly, that's one thing. But if I sit down and I write it out, it actually lives on in my memory the way I wrote it, Mm -hmm. which is more intricate, more detailed, more involved and... Uh, maybe more helpful even than than if I hadn't done that. Is that does that feel right? You can create context. So our brains are narrative machines. They tell story. Our consciousness is a story told on an ongoing basis. And so when we go back and retell that story, we lose the constraints of not only the amount of time the event actually took but the limitations of how much we can remember in any one moment. We pick up that memory and we look at it from different angles. In the process, of course, we reconstitute it and we change it. That's unavoidable based on how brains work. Hmm. But it doesn't matter because the point is not some forensic examination of factual events. That doesn't matter unless we're in a court of law. The point of writing as communication is to create understanding and insight and beauty 
and wonder in a way that is often difficult to achieve in the moment of our daily lives. Our brains are narration machines, as Science Mike says. There's a lot going on in our heads when we sit down to write. So it's not simply recording our thoughts. What we're doing is the work of making sense of our lives. No wonder writing is so difficult. It's difficult because it's powerful. And it's not just difficult for you, it's difficult for everyone. I also sat down with Deborah Ross. I'm Deborah Ross. I'm licensed as a counselor and I am a certified journal therapist. And I am the co-author with Kathleen Adams of Your Brain on Ink. And I was a private practice psychotherapist for 20 some odd years. And along the way, got certified as a journal therapist. And then almost five years ago, left the private practice world to focus on teaching journaling and expressive writing. As it turns out, writing carves neural pathways. When you sit down and write, it's actually changing your brain. Let's check in with what Deborah had to say. So can you just say a little bit more about the connection between writing and neuroplasticity? What is happening in the brain as somebody writes? Well, it's a, a combination of things. First of all, what happens in the brain is somewhat dependent, certainly, on what something someone is writing about, because a, a lot of this research has to do with where one's attention is going. Mm-hmm. So what's happening in your brain is is going to be somewhat dependent on, on where your attention's going. We also, to the best of my knowledge, I think there is still only one study, uh, be, because some of what we know about what's happening in the brain, we know as a function of an MRI, specifically a functional MRI. And it's very different for, it's very difficult for somebody to be having an MRI and writing. Yeah, there was was a German researcher who managed through a system of mirrors and all this other stuff to, um, to, to get something going, but he was having people write a story. He was not having them journal. So, we don't necessarily know that much about it, but you've got motor skills happening. You've generally got people drawing on, on memory, but mm-hmm. you've got all of these circuits firing and depending on you know whether they're newly forming circuits or you're reinforcing the older ones, you know, that, that is, is uh, some of what's happening. You also, especially if you're writing by hand, you are at a slower pace, so it it can give you a little bit more space to be observational about what's happening. But essentially, as a storytelling um, species, narrative is the coin of the realm. It is how we are making sense of our lives. Hmm. Uh, narrative integration is really about the fact that we know that we know. And, and it's fundamental um, to a process of integration and integration is, you know, in, in the, certainly in the interpersonal neurobiology world is mental health. So, yeah. you know, so you've got the, you've got memory circuits activated, you've got the uh, circuitry activated according to what the content is, you've got motor circuitry, you know, all of these, these different things happening. But neuroplasticity essentially is the fact that your brain um, in one of the ways that it's it's described is your brain takes the shape of what the mind rests upon. So the ability to, uh, first of all, grow new neurons, strengthen the connections between neurons, 
And then also increased firing efficiency is very much dependent on where you are resting your attention and what you yeah. um, what you're focused on. So I think the, the example that's often used is I I am not an Olympic skier, and I am certainly not you know a, a, a consummate musician, but for people who have practiced those skills in that way, their firing efficiency is going to be about 3000% better than mine for the same skill set. Wow. Yeah. And there's the famous London uh, cab driver. You can see it on, on YouTube where they, to be a London cabbie, you have to uh, memorize the street map of London. Mm. And so there were people had MRIs prior to the training program. I think it's about two years and then post. And you can see the growth in the brain of, of those portions of the brain that relate to spatial orientation and memory, things like that. So neuroplasticity is essentially the ability of the brain to change in response to experience. Oftentimes people use it as a positive. It is neither positive nor negative. It depends on where that attention is going. Uh, yeah. yeah. So if the attention is going into rumination, you're definitely changing your brain, but it may not be in the direction that you want. Okay. So tell me if I'm getting this right from, cause I'm coming from a layman's perspective, but it sounds like there's a connection here to why maybe a rage on the page approach wouldn't be helpful in the long run is because what you're doing when you're putting words down on the page is you're carving neural pathways. And so if you're carving neural pathways that are negative and, you know, hopeless and whatever fatalistic, then it's just going to reinforce what you were feeling before. But if you can carve neural pathways that are hopeful and that see a way out of your pain and that brings some, light or meaning to your story that maybe that could be a way that you could experience some relief. Is that, is that a fair way to say that? Yeah. Yeah. But perfect. Absolutely. And there's one other, other piece that uh, goes along with this. And that is the phrase that the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive. Mm. And so that's known as the brain's negativity bias. And that is really about, you know, the the brain's function is in part to keep you alive. And it's in noticing the negative experiences, fast tracking them into long-term memory that will help keep you alive. It is about survival and about two thirds of your brain is devoted to that. The way that our brain still functions is if it's thousands of years ago and the operative question is, am I going to have lunch or am I going to be lunch? <laughs> and it really does not matter how poetic the menu is if you happen to be the menu. Yeah. So so you've got you know this negativity bias of the brain. So you're already primed in essence to do that kind of raging on the page. But if you continue to do that, you know, and, and you drop into that rumination, you will, as, as, as you, you know, beautifully summarized, just simply reinforce that circuitry. And is that what you want to be doing? Writing is difficult because it's powerful, but sometimes we make writing more difficult than it needs to be. Part of what keeps us stuck is simply our own misconceptions about what it means to be a real writer or what real writing really is. In your experience, have you seen like common misconceptions about the journaling process or anywhere that 
that people really go wrong in their thoughts about what journaling is for or how it can work? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, well, that you have to do it at a certain, you have to do it every day, that you have to do it at a certain time each day, and that you have to produce a certain amount each day. Mm-hmm. All, none of those are you know, accurate or, or particularly useful. The research doesn't necessarily support that you, you need to do this daily or at a certain time or produce a certain amount. Okay, so, so you take those off the table. That you need to create a body of work that has been edited. No, spelling, grammar, punctuation, all irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, the phrase in my world is you write fast enough to let your Freudian slip. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, so that's certainly another piece of it. So, you know, those are just simply some myths that, you know, I think can be busted. The other thing too, is that under that phrase of neurons that fire together, wire together, people often come to their journal from a, a place of pain, rage, despair, anger, And that automatically starts to wire an association of pick up the pen and those are the feeling states I'm inviting. And our journals can be about holding uh, dreams, visions, creativity, celebration. And what we are learning about resilience is the importance of taking a positive uh, trait, a positive state, and turning it into a positive trait, which you do by paying a lot of attention to the positives, writing about them with as much sensory saturation as you possibly can. So you, you want to be inviting an association of your journal as a place to, to hold it all, you know, the totality of your being, the totality of your experience and not have it be just simply, you know, the, the churn and burn. The other place where I see people make mistakes is, you know, it's very common uh, these days for people to be creating gratitude journals, you know, wonderful things to do. No, no problem with that at all. However, Many people will write their gratitudes and they are, you know, kind of writing the same things, you know, over and over again. Brain certainly does like repetition, but there comes a point where we're not repeating. We're just kind of phoning it in. We're not even paying attention. Yeah. But it's also that people assume that the absence of a negative is a positive. And that's not the case with respect to our brain. So if you say, I'm grateful that I didn't get angry at, I don't know, my partner today, or I'm grateful that uh, my back didn't hurt as much today, or taking it in that vein, the brain does not register that as a positive. It it zeroes in on those words like anger and stress and, and whatever, throws out the qualifiers. The other thing is the brain wants to know, why should I store this? I mean, why should I give you any real estate for this gratitude? This is not what's keeping you alive. So you need to add a line of meaning for that. Why is that gratitude meaningful for you? Why did you just, you know, want to write that? And then your brain will go, oh, okay, got it. Um, You know, I'll I'll store it. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you have these additional pieces associated with it. And, and if you keep, you know, in front of you, the neurons that fire together, wire together, and this notion of neuroplasticity and the brain's negativity bias, 
then you can create for yourself a much more powerful, much more healing, much more integrative uh, writing experience. Back to science, Mike, on why we get stuck. So then why do you think so many of us resist writing even when we want to do it? So, you know, I talk to people all the time who say they have a book they want to write, they have a story they want to tell, maybe they're not even sure they want to publish, but they've got something that they want to get down on paper. And then when they actually try to do it, they aren't getting any writing done. Can you talk about what's happening when we're avoiding sitting down to the to the page? Absolutely. And this, I think, is the most important thing about writing and about the growth that comes with writing. We are social primates. Of all the primates that exist on Earth, our species is by far the most socially oriented and the least equipped to survive alone. Chimpanzees are Mm. really social. They live in societies of up to 50 individuals. But a chimpanzee, by his or herself, can survive for quite a while. They're skilled foragers. They're physically powerful. They know where to locate water. Uh, They can go toe-to-toe with most animals in their uh, eco-web. That's not true of us, right? Uh, Humans in the wild on their own, we just don't do well, and we never have. And so we equate social rejection (laughs) with death, as we should. (laughs) Yeah. So when we, as children, begin to create, messages of rejection really stick Mm. in our psychology. So when we tell a story or draw a picture or sing a song and our caregivers or our peers don't respond in or respond in a way that's other than 100% celebratory and affirming, our social brain goes, whoop, that exposed me to rejection. That's dangerous. That's mm. bad. And that gets baked into the nervous system. So then we become adults. And we decide we want to write. And we don't have a conscious memory of, you know, dad saying, that's great, buddy. I'm trying to watch the game when we brought a story. But our nervous systems know. And that creates in us a sense of fear, of rejection, of sadness. And no one likes feelings of fear or sadness. We're typically socialized against expressing them. And we understand from psychology that when we experience fear or sadness or even anger, we're angry. People don't take our work seriously. We then move into these kind of inhibiting feelings or affects like uh, guilt, worry, or shame, or anxiety. Those don't feel good. And so when every time we go to create, we block a feeling by feeling anxious or guilty or ashamed, that feels terrible. So we procrastinate. We do some kind of behavior that helps us medicate that that painful feeling. Maybe some Netflix, maybe a chocolate chip <laughs> cookie, right? Something, maybe a quick scroll on Twitter, whatever it is, something that helps us escape that cycle of difficult feeling, which is why I think there's only two ways to beat writer's block. And often we're told the way to beat writer's block is to just sit down and write. And ritual formation is certainly important. But I think also we need to start mending those emotional wounds that lead to writer's block in the first place. And that means the most important thing that happened for me as a writer was the first person who I shared my work with, my friend Bradley, always gave me 
positive feedback, even when I was writing terrible, (laughs) terrible things, just so poorly written. But the first step was getting the confidence for my nervous system that writing is, in fact, a safe activity. I think a therapist can help with that as well. But I think, you know, part of where writer's block comes from is our nervous system's internalized attempts to preemptively save us from rejection by keeping us from creating in the first place. That's really good. I had never thought of that before. That's really true. If you feel that writing is hard for you, you're not the only one. While writing is one of our most basic instincts, it's also dealing with the topics that are closest to our hearts and helping our brain make sense of our lives. No wonder writing can feel so hard. It's difficult because it's powerful. But it doesn't have to be as difficult as we make it out to be. In fact, if you come back next week, we'll talk about how you can start harnessing the power of writing for your own good. If you're ready to implement a regular practice of writing in your own life, don't forget to pre-order our copy of my latest book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple daily habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. When you pre-order today, you'll not only get an immediate download of chapter one so you can start reading right away, you'll also get access to our pre-order bonus package, which is worth over $400. All you have to do is order the book wherever books are sold, enter your order number at thepowerofwritingitdown.com, and your pre-order bonuses will be delivered directly to you. Thanks for listening, and until next time, happy writing.